All righty, we're at it. Hope you're here. Welcome to the show. John Scholes, your host, my co-host, in with me today, again, appropriately enough, Chris Justice, courtesy of Sam Fury to Mark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Chris is always ready to answer your questions. Um, when we're not doing the show on air, of course, you can reach out, one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. And uh, there's a website built just for you to use anytime, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Rolled into that is the severance calculator, which will do exactly that. Calculate your severance. It takes about 30 seconds. It's a good starting point, a good uh, leaping point. A launching point for determining how much severance you're really going to be owed if you've just lost your job or maybe you're thinking it may happen or just, you know, make it a home game. Let's see how much severance I would be owed. Let's use a severance calculator. But it is accurate. All, all, uh, all kidding aside, over 2 million people have used it and available anytime through pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. And in just a bit, we'll get to our topic, uh, main topic for the uh, the day, dealing with criticism, discipline, and bad performance reviews. We'll tackle that in just a bit in between your phone calls. So feel free to... Uh, to join the show with us uh, right now, Chris. Good, uh, good to have you on again, pal. What, uh, what do you got going on for the week that was? Yeah, thanks for having me as always. So, uh, in terms of the week that was, I've got a couple things. The first thing I wanted to talk about uh, had to do with the recent Bill eighty eight. I'm not sure um, too many people know about this, but uh, it deals okay. essentially with electronic employee tracking and its implications, sort of in the workplace. Um, So as of actually October the 11th of this year, 2022, employers in Ontario uh, and based on this bill uh, now have to have an electronic monitoring policy in place if the business itself has over 25 employees. So I thought given the recent implementation of this bill, uh, it would be important to sort of address uh, the legislation and just get an understanding of, first of all, whether employers are able to track their employees uh, and if so, to what extent? Wow. Okay. How's it work? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, I think the legislation generally is good uh, in the sense that it's going to hopefully make things at least more transparent. Um, because before the legislation came into effect, employers were, at least some of them, tracking their employees. And uh, the employees simply just didn't know, didn't know what was legal, what wasn't. So I think that's, first of all, one good aspect of this piece of legislation um, but essentially, the main question, uh, at least one of the questions I posed was, are employers you know, actually allowed to track their employees? And, and the answer to that generally is yes. You know, employers are legally able to track their employees that are working remotely. Um, and so to an extent, it, it's perfectly legal for them to uh, implement tracking technology, uh, software to monitor employees while they're working remotely or even in the office if need be. Um, but employers just need to be wary that uh, there still needs to be, of course, a legitimate business reason to do the tracking, and the tracking itself must be done in a way that is uh, least, um, or as, as as least possible intrusive. Um, so sometimes I can I see employers kind of going a bit too far, but those are the qualifiers to that ability for them to track. Um, so it's it's generally a good thing for both employees and employers. Do you think, or do you think employees will feel you know kind of big brotherish about this whole thing? Yeah, well, I think generally it's good for both, but certainly, again, there comes a a sort of a question as far as whether employers go too far. Um, Mm -hmm. I know a lot of employees will be definitely hesitant to kind of accept this. Uh, They might, in fact, feel like their privacy is being intruded upon. Um, But I think at the the very least, people need to know um, what's possible and what isn't. Uh, And of course, employers should be making their employers aware, um, especially now given this legislation. 
Um, I, I know there's there's often a question as well in terms of maybe not uh, company property, so to speak, like a company laptop, but can employers track someone's personal devices? You know, it might be a phone, it might be a laptop that they just have at home. And it's definitely possible that employers can do that as well. So as much as, again, employees might think, well, that's going too far, uh, there's certainly going to be circumstances where it's acceptable, again, so long as the employers are very um, narrow or limiting in terms of the type of tracking, the type of intrusion that needs to happen. And again, as long as there's a legitimate business reason connected to that. Um, Although I do imagine as the months go on and the years go on, as far as personal devices are concerned, I can certainly see there being some some legal disputes over that. And I think this legislation is just the, the starting point. Um, I think over time, we'll get a better idea from the law as far as you know what circumstances are, are allowable and what aren't. Um, but generally speaking, whether it's your personal device or, or company property, so to speak, um, employers will have the opportunity or the ability to do some tracking of some sort. Um, now, we have been speaking about employees that have sort of thought, well, is this going a bit too far? Maybe, as you say, a bit, bit too big brotherish. Uh, and there definitely are going to be instances where employees refuse uh, to be tracked or they object to it in some way. And, and I'm sure they're going to want to know, you know, what are their rights in those circumstances? Can they do that? Can they push back? Uh, and, you know, how's the employer going to potentially respond? Um, so, again, again, I think it goes back to the purpose behind why the tracking is happening. If the employer is doing the tracking for a legitimate reason and it's in line with the legislation, then an employee is not going to likely be able to just simply prevent the employer from doing that. The employer is going to have that right. Um, if it goes too far, you know, that's definitely open open for debate. An employee may have more options or more rights to push back and say, well, hold up a minute, you know, you should only be able to do this or that. I'm not agreeable to this. And then the employer may have to make a decision at that point. Um, I think it's another important thing to know that if if someone loses their job, let's say you refuse to be tracked, you don't agree with the company's policy, and mm-hmm. you don't want to work on that basis, you know, and you lose your job, are you going to be entitled to severance? You know, is an employer going to have, you know, what's known as just cause to terminate your employment and give you nothing whatsoever on your way out? I don't think the answer to that is yes. I think much like any situation involving cause allegations, it's going to be very difficult for an employer to establish there's cause. So if you are someone who's lost their job in a situation like that, you're very likely going to be owed severance and uh, potentially upwards of two years severance. Um, but I do think it's, yeah. as I say, a good starting point. And um, there are certainly going to be limits. Um, but yeah, I thought it was good to kind of talk about this at the top just given its recent enactment and uh, again, likely kind of what implications or impact this is going to have. Yeah. I think the, uh, the limits topic is going to be the one that comes to the fore for sure. I mean, I, I mean, if you're, even if you're at home using yeah. company property on company time, okay, I, I get some sort of tracking device, but outside of that right. personal property, get your nose out of it. That That's my personal opinion for your employer, but yeah, this is going to cause yeah. some, uh, some waves for sure, man, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do think, you know, you raise a good point about the timing of the tracking. Like you say, mm-hmm. if it's within business hours during the course of someone's employment, you know, of course, there's going to be more uh, acceptance towards that. But after yep. hours, again, you get into that whole issue of is this is this for a legitimate business reason? Is it not? Is the employer going too far? Uh, you know, I've heard of issues such as camera monitoring. So like an employer, for example, um, maybe telling someone to enable their their camera on their laptop or their desktop 
and for the employer to essentially surveil the employee in that way. And that's definitely going too far. Um, at least right now it is. I know of other situations where employers may wish to record phone calls of their employees, and that's going to go probably a step too far. So yeah, it, it, definitely to the extent there are breaches of privacy rights or even that the possibility of that, that that's not in line with this law, I can definitely foresee a lot of situations where employees are saying, well, no, this is too big of a change to the terms of my employment. I didn't agree to it. It's a privacy violation. And I think I've effectively been terminated as a result of you, my employer, now imposing, you know, this this new set of terms on me, which, you know, as I'm sure many listeners know, um, is referred to as a potential constructive dismissal case. And again, that's where those termination rights are going to get opened up. What else you got going on, pal? Yeah, so I've got another, uh, I guess it would be a, a general topic or trend that I'm seeing more nowadays. Um, it wasn't too long ago I was on the show talking about uh, quiet quitting. You know, this concept of quiet quitting, yes. which is where employees, you know, they're, they're choosing now to only, or at least some of them are choosing now to only do the bare minimum of what their job entails rather than going above and beyond uh, and just kind of skirting that line. Um, but there's also a phrase known as quiet firing. Um, which has also arisen, especially nowadays. And I wanted to sort of discuss, you know, what does that mean? You know, what implications does this notion of quiet firing have uh, on employees? And, and so while quiet quitting is in the context of the employee's actions, uh, quiet firing is, is more so in the context of the employer's actions. And it's where essentially your employer is pressuring you or influencing you in some way to push you out of the job, to try to get you to resign you know, to make things uncomfortable um, in hopes that, yeah, essentially you do leave and now the employer can uh, possibly avoid having to pay you severance whatsoever. Uh, you know, a lot of employees, a lot of clients I talk to, they have mentioned to me that they're feeling pressure. And this is actually going as far back as I've been doing the job. Uh, you know, these employers are coming to me saying they're being pressured from various angles from their boss or their manager, and they're on the brink of quitting and, and they're kind of wanting to know uh, what to do. So first of all, as much as an employer may think that all resignations are resignations, it's just not simply the case. If if an employee has quit, um, but it's because of this uh, pressure or this influence, then there's going to be a question of whether that resignation was even voluntary, um, you know, because that's the key part of a resignation it has to be voluntary, uh, unilateral. You as an employee have to come to the decision to stop your work with that company. And so in these cases, that's not going to be the case. And it's going to likely be more viewed, again, as a termination, as a form of constructive dismissal, uh, because quiet firings are effectively illegal. Um, that, that's, again, that's a termination, and that's going to open up your rights upon termination. Um, you know, a lot of employees and a lot of clients I talk to, I speak to them about the various ways that their employer is pressuring them. You know, so maybe they're no longer being included on certain shifts for the next week or the coming weeks, and they feel maybe ostracized or excluded in that way. Or, of course, if your employer is coming to you and saying, you know, we're going to be changing around your, your commission policy, and now that's going to re result in a huge reduction in your pay. You know, again, just little things, little changes, or even big changes uh, that over time are, are sort of aimed potentially at having that person just think, you know, I don't really want to be here. So they can take many different forms, quiet firing, but I think it's, uh, it's of course, important for employees to sort of recognize when this is happening right. and uh, at least have an idea of what their options are when they are in these sorts of situations. 
And with um, that, we're taking a wee bit of a break there, Chrissy. And uh, yep. we got lots more to go. Dealing with criticism, discipline, and bad performance reviews. We'll tackle that sucker. We'll continue the Employment Law Show. Stand by. You bet. We're back at it. Thanks for hanging on through the break. Schools here along with Chris Justice, Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP. Anytime you want to reach out, talk to Chris about your employment matters. Maybe you're on tenterhooks about possibly being let go. Maybe it's a workplace harassment thing. A simple severance question. Doesn't matter. You can always call Chris and his team. Get some answers. Have a chat. It'll cost you nothing right there. one 855 215900 is the phone number anytime. Help at employmentlawyer.ca and the website for you as well, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Um, okay, Chris, dealing with criticism, discipline, and bad performance reviews. So if an employee does not believe that a bad performance review or that disciplinary action from their employer is justified, it's not a correct measure, What uh, mm-hmm. what's the first steps, man? What should they do? Yeah. So actually just before that, I think, you know, this Mm -hmm. topic of dealing with criticism, discipline and bad performance reviews dovetails nicely with what we were talking about just before the break, as far as the quiet firings are concerned. Um, This can, this can be another example uh, of where the employer is again, applying pressure and trying to influence someone maybe to leave. You know, it's, it's obviously a question of whether the criticism is justified, whether the criticism is being, sort of launched against you, again, as a means of getting you out later on, whether it's a termination or a resignation or a forced resignation. Um, so yeah, this is definitely one potential example of, of those uh, quiet firing situations. Now, as far as your question's concerned, you know, what should an employee do uh, if they don't believe uh, a performance is legitimate or justified? Uh, they definitely have to say something. You know, far too often, uh, people that I speak to, especially after the fact, uh, tell me that they just stay silent. They don't really voice their opinion. They tell me they don't agree with the criticism, but they just never really formally communicated that to the employer. And then, of course, the employer is going to have a potential out where they say, oh, well, we never knew. And, and you know, it's just not going to look good on the face of it. So you definitely want to say something uh, to the extent that you as an employee feel like certain criticisms are completely wrong then you need to correct your employer. If you feel like certain criticisms might be misleading or there might be an omission of certain information or facts from the criticism, then again, you're going to want to correct your employer. You're going to want to add some further context to that. And of course, as I always say, you're going to want to put these things in writing, um, usually maybe by th- by through, uh, through an email um, or a letter of some sort, but you want to make sure there's a paper trail, a record, so that should anything happen later on down the road, at least you have that and it's not going to be a battle of your words versus your company's words. Absolutely so that for sure advice. has to be done. Yeah. yeah. You, you don't want to be aggressive with your response either. You don't want to yep. um, use a certain aggressive tone. You want to be professional. Again, you want to just point out the facts of what's right, what's wrong. And then once you have done that, once you've got that sent off to the employer, of course they may, they may respond. They may have a response or a rebuttal or, or they may take it on board. But at least, again, you've got that record. You're not going to be able to have your company now try and rely on that later. You're going to prevent them essentially from relying on that review or that criticism, maybe in support of a future termination that they have in their minds down the road. Um, So, yeah, you don't want to be silent. That's going to be oftentimes viewed as you just accepting the way it is and agreeing with your employer. Um, And you want to make sure you, you protect yourself in that sense. Because you want to again protect your rights moving forward. For Brent, thanks for hanging on for a moment. How are you, pal? Yeah, I'm good. Good morning. I've been Beautiful. employed. 
I've been employed full time for 10 years, eight hours per shift. Now, lately, I, rumors are the employers trying to uh, cut back on the labor budget. And uh, I, they, I have a feeling they want to shorten my hours to four hours per shift from eight. Right. So I can't afford to do that. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a situation, uh, you know, very much on point with today's topic. Yes, I, uh, I was listening earlier, and you were yes. talking about forced resignation, and I feel that that's what's happening. <clears throat> and if I resign, I'm afraid I'll lose my severance pay. Exactly. No, you're you're right to call in because if you do resign, not to say it will happen, but you certainly put yourself at risk uh, of losing severance pay or at least of, of not giving yourself the best chance to get the maximum severance if, in fact, a change like that happens. Because you're, you're effectively getting your hours cut in half, you know, and that is a significant change to the terms of your employment. And even if that change is being made for legitimate business reasons, so, for example, if the business isn't doing that well and they have to make cuts, don't think that just because that's the case that you therefore have no rights. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, they only might have rights or options if their employer is doing something in bad faith. Um, and, and it may be in bad faith, not to suggest it isn't, but at the very least, it's, it's a significant change to the terms of your employment either way. So I think this is a scenario where you should definitely be giving our law firm a call. We can talk through it with you in greater detail because you're going to want to communicate, of course, to your employer that you're not agreeable to that decrease. Um, and at that point, it's going to be in your employer's uh, court. You know, they're going to decide ultimately what they want to do. But at least you've noted down your objection and you've stated in some way or manner that this is a significant change that you're not agreeable with. If your employer w- in- insists on that change happening, then, you know, you very well have a case, I think, for a constructive dismissal. And you can almost treat that as though it's a termination of your employment and go after that, that company for, for as much severance as, as possible. So you want to, you wanna, like I say, give us a call. We can sort of talk you through the steps of how you need to communicate and just make sure, again, that you're not saying or doing anything that might be uh, construed as you accepting it or, or perceived in that way. So they have the option of negotiating a severance settlement. Is that right? Well, your employer may not want to pay you severance. Your employer may believe that these changes are acceptable, that you're expected to agree to the changes. So so there may be a little bit of a dispute uh, between you and your employer as far as whether you're owed severance and what that severance looks like. Um, but what I'm saying is that as far as the law is concerned, if, if a unilateral change is being pr- imposed on you that you don't agree with, you have the option to either accept that change, which then moving forward might mean you can only work four hours a shift or refuse that change or even potentially negotiate the change. So maybe reach a compromise. Um, But you as a 10 year employee, your your potential severance entitlements for something like this could be 12, 14, 16 months or even more, depending on all the circumstances. So so there's a lot potentially there to to gain or lose. Oh, I see. Okay, I need the how to contact your law firm in that situation. I'll give, uh, I'll give you that number right now, Brent, as we, uh, as we let you go. Simple one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Again, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. And I'll uh, be giving that out throughout the show as we continue there. I want to get back into our uh, topic of the day. We're talking about dealing with criticism, uh, Chris, and discipline, and bad performance reviews. We've heard this before, that some people think they're going to uh, – kind of uh, have a little bit of a workaround when it becomes uh, a point of, you know, 
disciplined, bad performance reviews, dealing with criticism, and they think, okay, I'll take a medical leave if the situation becomes too stressful. Where do you stand on that? Yeah. So uh, first of all, absolutely. If you're if you're someone, an employee uh, who needs to take a medical leave if the situation becomes too stressful, you have that right, full heart, wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. You know this this stress that you're experiencing. It could be from maybe being placed on a performance improvement plan or a PIP, as we call it. Uh, again, something that you might feel is unjustified. Um, it, it might be just from constant criticism from your manager, your boss. You know, they might be breathing down your neck, hounding you about this, that, or the other. And, and I've definitely had many clients and, and individuals come to me um, wanting or needing to take that leave. Um, so absolutely, you can do it. If you, if you feel you cannot work, and, and importantly, your doctor agrees with you, then 100% you can go off. Uh, you don't need to tell your employer the precise reason as to why. You, you just mainly need the support of your doctor saying, given the circumstances, you're going to need to take a break for work uh, from work. Rather, uh, Whether your doctor will know how long or not, you know that, that's open for, for discussion. But you, you can do that, and, and you should be getting your doctor's support um, because your employer is definitely going to be asking for that in some way or another. Um, and again, then after that happens, you know, if the company tries to allege that you're not doing your job or your numbers are lower, in fact, if the employer suggests that you're a poor performer because you've taken time off or, or whatever, that could also result in a potential human rights issue, which then can expose the employer to, to a lot more liability than otherwise would be the case. Um, and as far as I, I just want to go back quickly to the time, uh, a lot yep. of people uh, talk to me and they say, how long can I go off? Uh, can I go off a day, a week, a year? You can do all of that. You can go off essentially for as long as you need. So don't feel like you're pressured to go back to work. Again, as long as you've got the support of your doctor, you can take that medical leave and um, recover and, and hopefully get back to work after that point. If it's a, a situation where the employee, you know, they don't improve their performance after a couple of warnings or stuff like that, can, mm-hmm. they, can the employer and will the employer and can they legally fire them for cause without severance pay? What do you think? Yeah. So earlier I was mentioning that your employer may be trying to build a case against you, try to push you out of your job. And one way they um, will go about doing this is by giving you a number of warnings, sort of papering the trail on their end, and then having that all build up to this for cause termination. Most need to show essentially that you were performing poorly deliberately, intentionally, right. you know, not maybe not necessarily a situation where you're negligent or, or, or something along that line. So, again, that bar to meet for companies to establish just cause is extremely high. Don't ever think as an employee that your company has cause or don't assume anyways, because it's likely not the case. Um, and uh, yeah, so if that's the case, uh, you'll definitely want to give us a call so that we can uh, make sure that you communicate in the right way going forward. Let's take a, a short break. We'll get into a couple more points when it comes to uh, dealing with criticism and discipline, performance reviews, bad ones, stuff like that. Then we'll move on to employee rights when the business is sold. Another great topic. We'll continue with the Employment Law Show. You bet. We're back at it. Thanks for hanging on through the break. Schools here along with Chris Justice, Sam Fury, Tamark, and LLP. And anytime you want to reach out to Chris when the show is done, it's uh, simple, right? one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. And if you just go to employmentlawyer.ca, the website for the firm, there is a, a menu there and you can find a knowledge center actually is what it was. Drop down to the media tab and you'll find uh, past radio shows, uh, the YouTube and Facebook uh, projects that they do and also links to our long running 
doing TV show as well. Again, employmentlawyer.ca to, uh, to do all that. But we are going to talk about and finish up uh, Chris Tilling, uh, talking about our one topic for today, and that is dealing with criticism, discipline, bad performance reviews. Um, when it comes to a situation where performance review allegations are advanced against you as an employee, at what time do I say, you know what, enough of this, I'm picking up a phone, I'm calling Chris and going to deal with this, right. get, on, get on the phone with a lawyer. When does that happen? Yeah, I mean, if it's uh, if it's up to me, I generally say it's always good to uh, contact someone early on, if possible. Um, certainly, if you're an employee and your employer has actually gone so far as to give you a performance improvement plan, which is usually you know a stage during this uh, performance criticism type process where things become more formal, uh, a bit more serious. Then, then absolutely, by no later than that point, I would say you should be getting into contact with a lawyer. But honestly, I think even contacting a lawyer beforehand, before it gets to that stage, um, is going to be beneficial. I mean, really, as soon as your employer um, reaches out to you and advises you of certain criticisms, especially if those criticisms are unfair or unwarranted, I just think it's beneficial to contact a lawyer, if only just to sort of um, make sure that the way in which you're communicating that pushback on your end and, and sort of maybe correcting things for them, um, uh, I think it's important for that reason. I mentioned earlier being professional and sort of phrasing your response in a certain manner, and, and you just don't want to further inflame the situation. So for me, I think it's as early as possible once you get this, this suggestion or the idea that your employer might be trying to force you out or, or coming up with with issues that may not be issues or um, again, they might be cherry picking certain things and omitting certain key facts that might actually explain why you as an employee uh, may have done something or didn't do something or, or whatever the case may be. So I just think generally ASAP. And we always say that regardless of, of, of the situation, when it comes to performance reviews and bad reviews, you always need to reply in writing. Otherwise, as we say, silence is the same as acceptance. You may say, oh, no, I didn't think it was right. Well, did you put that in writing? Because there's no evidence of it. It just makes your job, Chris, a lot easier down the road if you have to get involved, right? Yeah, 100%. You know, the employer, whether they believe it or not, they're going to say that, oh, this is the first time we've ever heard of it. You know, Chris, you're advocating on behalf of your client. You're telling me X, Y, Z, but we never heard X, Y, or Z from your client for the right. entire time that they've been working here. You know, they they had a side convo. You know, sometimes clients of mine will have side convos with people. You know, they might be talking to one of their coworkers, or they might be talking to someone they don't maybe report directly to, or someone who's not in a human resource capacity, and they might vent their frustrations. You know, they might say this is wrong or whatnot, and then they'll come to me and they'll say, well, no, no, hold up, Chris, I did tell the company uh, what my disagreement was, but it's just, they didn't really do it in the right format. They didn't tell the right person. You know, mm -hmm. that person then obviously may not relay that information to anyone else else at the company. So it's not good enough just to say that you as an employee have vented your frustrations or spoken out about it. It's going to depend on who you're speaking to, how you're speaking to them and, and what exactly the issue is. So as you say, putting things in writing is, is absolutely paramount because even if you're on the side of truth later on, if you've got no evidence to back it up other than your word, it's just going to make it a lot more difficult um, for you to get what you rightfully deserve at that point. I want to bounce over to our next topic, but I want to get to a, uh, an email that just came in from our pal Jacob it says, Hey, Chris, I was mm -hmm. let go with 20 weeks pay after 20 years <laughs> with the company in a specialized role. I'm 67. When I asked about a larger severance package, my boss said that the termination clause in the company's contract doesn't allow it, but I have a copy of the last contract I signed and it doesn't contain any termination clause. What do I do? 
Yeah. So this is a common scenario. Someone's been let go. They've been offered a package and they're questioning whether or not that package is sufficient. And first of all, um, generally speaking, the factors that go into determining how much severance somebody gets are going to be the age of that person at the time they're let go. So in Jacob's case, he's 67. He's going to be in an age range where courts have typically awarded greater amounts of severance because they recognize that for older individuals, at least in theory, it's going to be more difficult for them to secure employment. So age is one factor. Mm-hmm. Length of service, how long you've been with the company is going to be another factor. Jacob has mentioned that he was with the company for 20 years. That is considered long-term service. And for long-term service employees, as one might expect, you're going to get typically a lot more severance than a shorter term employee. So that's another factor. The third factor would be um, the uh, the position that the person had specifically. So, so Jacob hasn't, I don't think, said exactly what he does, but he has mentioned that he works in a specialized role. So mm-hmm. if you've got a very niche role, maybe with a very particular skill set being required, and, and there may not be as many of those roles out there, uh, then of course that is going to factor in in terms of how long it takes you to find something after you've been let go. So if you're an individual who has maybe a more niche or specialized role, or just a role within a company that's more senior in nature, it could be a manager, it could be a C-suite type executive role. Uh, again, those those roles, those positions are likely going to attract much more severance than if you're maybe, for example, making minimum wage at a company. Again, it all goes towards the availability of comparable work. So it seems like in Jacob's case, he's got age, he's got a length of service, he's got a specialized role, you know, all of these things pointing towards probably the hot, on the higher end of severance. Yep. And he's only being given 20 weeks after 20 years. You know, a lot of people come to me and they think, you know, a week for every year I work, that, that seems right. Or two weeks for every year I work, that negative. seems right. Yeah. Exactly. Negative, negative. You know, you, you could be getting four, six weeks for, per year, not just one or two. Um, Jacobs also mentioned that he looked at the last contract he signed and there's no termination clause. There's no mention of anything that would limit his rights, uh, in the event of a termination. And that's ultimately going to be good for Jacob. That's going to be good for any employee. If you don't have a contract or you do, but there's nothing mentioned in it about termination, then your potential severance entitlements, you're going to be able to go after those, those maximum potential severance entitlements. If you've got a contract that has a clause in it that limits your rights in some way, you're still probably going to have a good chance of getting your maximum severance entitlement. So the contract and what it says is another factor to be considered. But as I say, in Jacob's case, it seems like there isn't any termination clause. His boss is telling them there is a clause or the contract doesn't allow it. That's all well and good. Far too often, employees assume that their contracts are ironclad, that they effectively remove somebody's rights to get their potential maximum severance entitlements. And the vast majority of times, they're just simply incorrect. So Jacob needs to contact us, get in touch with a lawyer, and make sure that a reasonable, a fair and reasonable severance package is negotiated because he could get upwards of two years of severance, let alone just 20 weeks. You know, I know we got a break here in a a minute or two, but I found it interesting too. Now, this Mm -hmm. is not the case with him because he was offered severance, but he also put in there, I have a copy of the last contract I signed. Now, I know we've talked about in cases too, where someone like in Jacob's case is, you know, I signed a a contract Mm -hmm. year after year, like 
teachers in private mm. schools, for instance, and they figure they sign 20 years, 20 contracts, they get let go. The employer says, oh, well, you're a contractor. I don't owe you a severance. In this case, not the case, but that could very easily have been the case of Jacob saying the contract is, no, no, you signed a contract every year that we're, we're, we're through and done. I don't owe you a severance. Incorrect again, right? Yeah, yeah. Incorrect, possibly correct. Like the, the, the issue yeah. of what is that last signed contract? Because I have talked with many people. I've asked them up front, you know, give me the contract you signed last. I have a contract. I look at it. I look at the clause. There's nothing of concern to me. I tell this person, okay, there's no contract really limiting your rights. And then it maybe comes out later on. Oh, I signed something a few years after that one that I gave you. Uh, I just don't have a copy of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the comp maybe that's what the company's referring to. And then it's, it's definitely possible there could be a more recent contract that you signed that you may not remember, be aware of, uh, or just have in your possession that, that could be worded differently than the one maybe that you give your lawyer, the one that you gotcha. have a copy of. And that could change the, the things. And I've, I've often or many times found out later on that, okay, there's actually a contract in here that's worded a bit differently. Uh, and so that could be a potential problem. But the vast majority of these contracts I still find even nowadays are not being drafted in a way that limits someone's rights. So whether you're in that situation or, as you said, John, sort of in a, a successive contract type scenario, um, you know, there's a very good chance that that's still not likely going to give the company an out. And again, that's going to open up the door for you to get um, maximum severance possible. Which is why we say always reach out before you make any move to Chris and his team. one 821 5900 We'll take one more small break here and get back into uh, employee rights. When a business is sold, that's on the way. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll continue. This is the Employment Law Show. Chris Justice, Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP is our guy, always representing here on the show. Answer your questions on and off air, 1-855-821-5900, anytime to get a hold of Chris and his uh, excellent team, help at employmentlawyer.ca as well. Let's get into this, pal. Employee rights when a business is sold. Always get questions on email through this as well. Number one, when a business is sold, do the employees automatically get severance? Because you'd figure they would. It's been <clears> sold. <throat> Their job's gone, right? Right. So the answer though is no. So severance is not paid automatically. Uh, you do get severance with the sale of a business if you're out of a job. You know, so if as a result of the sale, you're out of work, you lose your job, you're not continuing maybe with the, the purchaser, the buyer of the business, then you're going to get your full severance that you're owed from the company that sold the business. And again, that's going to be based on those factors I mentioned before. First of all, you know, whether there's a contract and what it says, but also the age, the position, the length of service, and the availability of other work out there. Gotcha. You want to move on to the next point? That's a quick one, but easily easily answered yeah. for sure. What happens to an employee's length of service if they continue working? Again, I see this being part of a contract maybe or another reason to phone you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, this, these are scenarios that I, that I come into contact with a lot. If, if someone is hired by a new company, um, they the, the company that hired them, typically inherits the service on day one, you know, with, with the buyer they have. Um, so the service that you as an employee would have had with the previous company, uh, that's going to typically be included. Uh, so if like, say, for example, you join a new company after the sale happens and then you're terminated maybe a week or a month or a few months down the road, you're not likely going to be viewed as an employee with just a week or a month or a few months you're going to be an employee that's, you know, viewed as having that time put in, but also the time put in with the previous employer. So if, for example, you worked there for 
10 years before and you've got maybe one year with a new company, um, there's a very good chance you're going to be viewed simply as an 11 year employee. Um, and then of course, any severance entitlements that come with that length of service would, would go your way. What kind so, of threshold so do you got in that? Sorry, but I was just going to say, what kind of threshold you got in that regard? Say for your example, a tenure employee, now mm-hmm. you've, you've been brought on, you've continued working <clears> seamlessly <throat> with the buyer after what, right. two, three years, you're no longer relying on that previous 10 or what's the, what's the give and take on that? Well, no, you'd still, you would still be able to incorporate that previous tenure. Um, okay. You know, your employer uh, at the time, I guess the buyer is still going to be on a hook um, unless there might be something in a contract that you sign with a new employer that, that could uh, change things, but but absent that, um, whether you're with the employer for a year, a few years, or whatnot, uh, there's still that very good chance that all that previous service from the former employer is gonna gonna kick in. Okay, you just mentioned that as well. Something you signed with a new employer is that a red mm-hmm. flag you should be uh, aware of moving forward? Yeah. So if oh. let's say as a result of the sale of a business, uh, the the buyer uh, wants to keep you on. Uh, as one of its employees, and the buyer specifically asks you to sign a new employment agreement before they take you on, then yes, there is a possibility for that company, that buyer, to to put together an agreement that you'll sign that essentially contracts out of that previous service. And then in that scenario, you could actually you know, enter into this new relationship, not have those 10, 11, 12 years with the previous employer counted, um, and it's almost start fresh. You know, a lot of times uh, when I look at contracts from buyers in these scenarios, there might be a phrase that specifically says, you know, we do not uh, recognize your past service with the former company. Yes. You know, th- there might be a probationary period clause in there. You know, benefits might not kick in until three months after you start working with the buyer. You know, these are all uh, things that would typically come with a new hire, with a fresh hire. Um, whereas if those things don't exist and it's, you know, just this more seamless transition, um, it's just the person that that's cutting the check to you, that that's the only thing different is the name on, on the check. Then, then yeah, you're as an employee going to have a much greater time arguing that, you know, all of that is, is seamless, it's continuous service. And so you, the buyer can't, um, sort of avoid paying that, but there are still circumstances where they can, uh, contract out of it. So you definitely have to be careful uh, this this goes with any contract. You know, you're presented sure. with a contract or something to sign. Of course, you're going to want to be careful before you sign it, especially if it's a fully fledged employment agreement. Um, because yeah, there may be stuff in that agreement, as I say, that that will oust your ability, prevent you from having that previous service recognized. Um, and, and really, you know, whether it's a contract that doesn't recognize your service, it could also be a contract that may recognize your service, but has a whole host of other terms in there that you don't understand or don't realize maybe the impact of, uh, you know, there could be a termination clause in the new contract that's worded in a way that was very different from the previous contract. Mm-hmm, right. So, so there's always things to be mindful of when, when being presented with a contract, but certainly, you know, giving up the potential of all that severance. If, if you're someone who, as I say, put in 10, 12, 13 years before, you know, that's going to be huge. So whether it's that or other terms, you want to be careful. You want to have a lawyer look at the contract before you sign it. Uh, so you know exactly what those options of yours are. We got one minute before I let you go, man. I'm going to ask you this one question. You can answer quickly mm-hmm. based on what you just said. If you look at it, you say, no, no, I don't like this contract. You're not going to recognize my previous service right. and you don't want to continue on a, does that company now, the new company pay your severance B, is it a resignation? 
Yeah. So, so if you have as an employee, a good reason as to why you're not accepting the job, maybe there's a different location. Now you're being given mm -hmm. different hours or pay, you know, again, there's a substantial change to what you're used to before you don't have to accept it and you can go after your full severance. Um, however, if you choose to not take on the new role with the new company, because you want to go to school, retire, maybe change industries, then you're still going to be out severance. It's just going to be the minimum amounts possible. But either way, you're going to get severance and it's just going to depend on the circumstances of whether you get the minimum or your absolute full in severance entitlements. That is it for another day. You want to reach out to Chris, which is always a very wise move. Here's how you do that. one 821 5900 and help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Employment Law Show.